Hey, it's Lou Carlos, the host of Bankadelic in Chicago, the sister podcast to Dave and Darm Demystify. In the first of two parts, Dave and Darm will be taking a look back at Inkscape, a revolutionary pioneer in the financial technology world. It went after people who were mass affluence with 50,000 pounds or more to invest. And in November of 2000, when Inkscape was launched, there was nothing like it, not only for the banking public, but as a place to work where great ideas flourished and great team spirit was all around. And to take you back today, Dave and Darm have part of the Inkscape posse with them. Jeff Scott, who was the CMO of Inkscape, and Paul Loberman, who was a senior manager. Inkscape didn't last, but it made an impact, and we'll learn all about it today on Dave and Darm Demystify. From the studios of Contrarian, new media in the UK and US, comes the Dave and Darm Demystify show. Dave and Darm Demystify Show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Darm Mystery. Demystify. This is about really looking back on Inkscape and talking about some of the lessons that were learned and some of the application of those lessons today. So tell us about Inkscape, the proposition, what it was, and I guess kind of interestingly why Abbey National saw the opportunity with the brand. It was obviously an interesting time to be able to create something new. I think the bank wanted to try generate value by getting into the dot-com sort of space. They saw everything with dot-com potentially adding significant value. So things that could create that potential point of difference and being a different brand but backed by a large parent was seen as a sort of an opportune route and there were loads of savers that were sitting in the abbey branches but no one really came to us for investments everyone would either do absolutely nothing with it or would try and find an ifa and there wasn't really an ifa brand or they would try and do something with a broker but no one really knew if you ask them walk down the street and say people how do you invest in the stock market 95 percent of people wouldn't know how to do it so they would go to their banks maybe so it was really an idea that we've got all of this wealth that sits in savings accounts that really isn't doing as much as it could for people so there was definitely a customer that i mentioned to it which says how do we get people to make more use of their money but in a way that feels friendly and accessible. So we want to try and democratise, demystify and deliver. So make it for everyone and take it so it's not all in jargonistic language. Bring it with the voice of the people, as it were, but try and get access to the things that the really rich have or institutions have. So that investment engine wasn't going to be a dumbed down version. It should be something that stands up to critique and it's got to deliver. It's got to do what it says in the tin. So that was a sort of premise. Can we do that and give customers a bit more control over their future? So that was the sort of proposition. And it worked to an extent that when people heard about it, they really loved it. But our real challenge was getting enough people to the door, as it were. And one of the challenges that we had, obviously, was we were normally expecting people to walk through the branches and then be handed off to us as a separate business. And that was clearly a challenge on level because 
back in the day, people were incentivized to keep customers in one part of the business, not necessarily pass them over to another part of the business. I think that's maybe something we'll talk on later. But so in terms of its overall proposition, I think it was also seeded in a lot of research. So to try and understand why it is people might want this sort of thing, we did a lot of work. And the things that we found out, I think, are very relevant to today, which is its attitude to finance, not absolute amount of wealth that really defines how comfortable you feel with the way in which your money is managed and how engaged you are in that process. And I think Abbey was such a strong brand. If you looked at what it stood for was mortgages and savings. It wasn't seen as you can't do a Morgan Stanley or it's not a Goldman Sachs. It's not, And people thought to be an investment specialist, you had to have that sort of credibility of the big names, the JP Morgans, the UBS, but it didn't have that credibility. And the Abbey name just didn't. It stood for financial security, the access into the real big players who would know about this sort of thing. So the proposition was really around, well, we might not do that ourselves, but we will manage other people that do that. So we were, this the proposition was a manager of managers. It wasn't a fund of funds. So we would go with a mandate. We would talk to all the best investment houses in the world and we would pull together a portfolio to our description, what we wanted them to try and do. So we were accessing people who wouldn't normally be available to your standard run-of-the-mill people and that felt like it wasn't part of what Abbey did and when you looked at what was happening at the time Halifax were doing they had launched you know if and we had smile and we had lots of banks and lots of other was seen as the thing to do is that it added a lot more value group wise as well if you could spin off something that could do something in that space and it wasn't encumbered by the traditional but it also had the digital dimension which again abby wasn't seen to necessarily have so we were putting in place something which sort of was of the time my first experience of inscape was the brand itself i mean and it was a real thing of beauty i mean i even remember kind of coming to the offices and the door handles having the logo on so there was a huge attention to detail around it and that experience and i guess You know, when I think back on those sort of dot-com days and the other brands, there wasn't another brand which was as well-crafted and as beautiful as Inkscape. What was the thinking behind making it so crafted? And what was the sort of overall reaction, I guess, from customers as well? I think there was a bit of a wow factor for some of the customers when you came into the offices because... It was a different sort of space. It wasn't the traditional oak panels and opulence feel. It was bright and airy and glass, which you could see, you know, there was opacity so you could have private meeting rooms, but effectively it was light and airy and it had an experience wall. So every centre, I remember some of these experience walls were just really interesting things to want to look at. So we had these little hooks. And so every month it used to be changed out. So you might have 50 variety of different hats or you might have pictures of hundreds of different people as kids or sunsets from around the world or postcards and it's a prompt it's a meaning for a discussion it's a different sort of environment you walk into that space and you expect to be open-minded and expansive it wasn't a banking closed culture it was trying to give you that sense of openness and light feeling and part of the the thought process of what is the brand we talked about the democratization of wealth we talked about true wealth though but not just money for its own means but money to be able to help you fulfill your ambitions in life whatever they are be that you know storing up it for the future to hand it on or whether to spend it on stuff for the here and now or saving for specific reasons 
but it is what you want it to be. And so we called it True Wealth Open Minds. We are open-minded about how you want to manage and use your money. And we expect you to be open-minded about how we go about doing some of that stuff because it's a discretionary service, but we'll pick some of the best fund managers in the world and we'll collate all of that stuff and we'll corral it to fill the needs that you have. So it's all fundamentally based around you, but it's not like anything else that you will see. If you go into Barclays and, as I say, you get what looks like a library and lots of panelling, this is a very different sort of experience. And I think to get that, you can't just have a building or you can't just say it in advertising. One of the things that we spent a lot of time on, and I know Phil Northy and the sales team was initially a little sceptical, but actually he bought into the whole sense of, if we're going to do this, we need all of our people to really understand what this means then to be a consistency. We'll think about how we dress and how we look. This is not about a McDonald's culture and having everyone looking the same, but there's got to be a certain style. There's got to be a certain sense of who we are, a set of values, you know, empathetic, open-minded, but also down-to-earth, straight-talking. So it's a lot of the values that your traditional national person might hope for, but not necessarily get if they go into any other wealth management institution. So all of those things were really important. And we did a branding box, I think, I don't know whether you remember those, which basically was an equipment, which if you wanted to give a session for your team, we would talk about what do we stand for and why do we stand for these things? Because it lives and breathes in the people. And if the people don't believe it, and they don't live it every day, then it isn't real. And that took a while. But I think in the end, most of the people really felt very proud of what was being created and what was being done. So, yeah, it worked. I remember the Ladybird books on that feature wall as well that we had there, so it brought back some memories. And we treated the customers like kings and queens when they came into those advice centres. From the moment they walked in the door and were greeted to the service they got, to the tea that we served. It was a different type of experience, kind of like an airport lounge where I think people would compare it with. And and interestingly, you mentioned airport lounge. I was just thinking we did a trial with Lexus. Do you remember? We signed up the Lexus franchise where they were trying to get into the UK market. And we basically said, you then go and pick up our clients. So you will deliver them. So some local franchise dealership would go out with a, a chauffeur effectively go and pick up the clients they get to sit back and there'll be lexus material in the back as well as inscape material in the back of the car and they would drop them off and that worked for maybe three six months and then clearly they weren't selling that many cars but we were getting a great experience but i think that idea of partnership and that whole sense of brands that look and feel similar so it was a bit disruptive but it was quality you know it was trying to find things like that that worked given that you married the physical aspects of your relationship managers and the outlets etc and with some digital presence if it was launched today would you see it as a digital proposition i think it would have to be a digital proposition but it wouldn't be a solely digital proposition i think that is the one thing even with the stuff that's going on now with covid you know i currently chair an ifa business and national network and one of the things that's really clear is that you can maintain relationships and do zoom calls and have digital interfaces and all of that but people need connections And even if those connections are not actually the advice process, even if it is, tell you what, we will got a special exhibition, you know, the Tate are doing an exhibition on French Impressionists and we think it's a great one. We'd like you to come along and be hosted for the evening. It's about those connections with people and shared values and shared understanding 
that are still going to be important and people still want to have them. It's part of their life. Money is not just about a financial transaction. It's about building that trust and engagement, which is difficult without some physical interaction. I think it could still work with a few tweaks. I mean, it was pre-iPhone days, pre-iPads were on there. We are still using PCs. I don't even think we had laptops were on there too. And I agree with Jeff that the basic concept of providing advice could definitely be done through the digital means, but it did need a personal touch. And I think when you're talking about mass affluent customers, and the, I think our customers had to have 50,000 pounds of assets there, but you could actually probably bring that proposition down to an execution-only level for some people who are comfortable now with investing and still allow them to have a personal level of service for those that actually need it. So I agree, it could definitely work now as a digital proposition, but it still needs for some sort of personal touch. And I think that does differentiate, but it's interesting. So if you look at what's happening today and you look at the major success in inverted commas, someone like Robin Hood, you know, in the States with the commission free and you would go, yeah, no, but it's a completely different thing, a completely different thing. That is literally a trading platform. It's not about creating relationships. It's not about, and it might be successful, but I think in the long term, that not sort of directly competitive and has a lot of downsides, doesn't do any education, makes a lot of money just from option trading effectively. It feels like a gambling site rather than a wealth management site. So it might create a lot of value but for me it's the long-term value and people relationships which really count you know so when markets are tanking do you still trust your advisor it's at one end of the scale where you've got kind of low margin volume traders that they're really targeting but at the other end you know people are starting to look at the robo advisors can you see any of those kind of creating relationships online I think there will be some, and I think the two areas any investment house needs to think about now from a creating wealth perspective is what about the passive funds? So what role does that play? And ethical. So both of those two need to be done, and ethical not just in the funds we have, but in the way the business is managed. So everything from the carbon footprint to the way I operate, you know, has to feel like it's moving in that direction. But I think there will be more automation but again it comes down to you know how many truly inspiring experiences have you had which have been purely ai driven i mean you might get eight out of ten and it's certainly having all that automation gets rid of all of your stupid mistakes that people can do by rekeying data and so your one and two out of ten experiences can come from people and won't come from robo or from automated stuff but the truly exceptional stuff your eight nine tens come with an extra layer of interaction and that for me is the bit that makes a difference now there may be a wealth category for that so you may have you can get our robo up to a certain amount of wealth and there may be a telephone only type service and then a full people service and then full access to people like you going to events with people like you and experiencing things that you wouldn't get access to otherwise i don't know but it feels like that human interaction is still going to be important back to what Inscape was doing it was moving savers to being investors and I mean I know many many businesses are struggling with that at this moment in time you know that whole how do you get people to be a bit more active with their money when their mindsets and I don't think you can do that without talking to somebody at some point because that's the point where you need someone to say well look actually do x y and z I mean I think 
that is where the sort of personal touch really, really counts, to be honest with you. So it's so interesting to kind of hear about the origins because it does sort of feel so fit for purpose in many ways for right now, you know. The other thing that I was struck by about Inscape was the employee experience as well. So, I mean, you talked about everybody being kind of very aligned. But again, with our kind of felt, well, this was a company with a real mission. So there was a lot of energy in the business as well. So can you just sort of outline what the employee experience was? And Paul, it'd be great to kind of hear some of your thoughts as well. I think the important thing is it started from the very top of the organisation. So for me, any culture, any creation has to live and breathe from the board right the way down. If it feels like some people play lit service but don't really take any notice of it, then that doesn't count. And then a sense of not only is it a good set of values and it's printed on the walls and it, you know, not that that makes the big difference, but it's there around you. But the people who are in there are all slightly different. They are experts in their field. You look at the guy who was running the investments, James Bevan, who was, you know, a very eccentric character. But you knew, you cut him in half and it said Inkscape, And he lived and breathed customers. And you go, wow, when you see that around you every day, open plan office, everyone available, no real hierarchy involved in all of that stuff, that feels a very different place to work. And I think that's what set the tone And then it's people being allowed to bring a little bit of their own creativity into some of the things. So idea generation and the way in which people were allowed to run. The individual offices had a framework, but there was definitely freedom within that framework to make sure that their customers are really happy. So if you had customers with dogs, would you have a dog bowl that had the water in there for the dog? That came? Yeah, of course you would. That'd be, you know, that's not written on a piece of paper, but that's just because that's who we are and what we do. And I think when you get that from people, it feels very special. Yeah, for me, looking back on it, it was really a typical startup environment. You know, new brand, separate location. I think when I joined, it was already in phase three of the project where we're still on the strategy side. And I joined as a relationship manager, as one of the first relationship managers, one of two at that time, and just to get involved in building something. So it was great. It was probably about 50 or 60 of us in an office about two blocks away from the main AMI National head office. But being separate, being co-located with everybody there was great. Felt like a family experience where everybody was, as you say, invested in Inscape right from the start. And I did a lot of the recruitment for the relationship managers around the country for Phil. And part of the way that we recruited was from a personality perspective. We didn't want people who were just relationship managers and went by the book. We wanted people who were engaging and personal and really just got on from the first moment because a lot of the knowledge and the investment, we had really sharp people like James that could just explain that easily so that people could explain that to customers. And we had a great brand. People were invested from the beginning. And I think that's what created that family. It was a lot of fun to work there as well. It was one of the best experiences in my career. And I think the culture side of things was really important. And you're right, Jeff, from the top. So I suppose CEO of this game was Malcolm Parker, right, who had a long career within the bank as well. And I remember him towards the end before we were going to launch. And we had a converted church in Ilford that acted as our production model office so we could launch things there. And I remember him standing on a rickety chair 
just before we were launching and rallying kind of everybody that was there about the journey. And it was for me so inspiring at that point and just kind of culminated in everything that we'd worked together over a couple of years to actually bring that to fruition. And the other part of it around the employee experience that you mentioned, which I think was great, was that we had a fairly flat structure. It, because we all worked together, because we all knew each other, because we'd worked together for quite a while, nobody was afraid to kind of raise issues or fix problems or take ownership for those things. And I remember, you know, our IT was built with something that was called rapid application development at that time. My company, I think, out of the US. But when we got it and we put it in front of mock customers and we did some testing, we felt that it wasn't good enough to put in front of customers visually. And although it was, you know, a robust system, the user experience design wasn't great. And, you know, the relationship managers spoke up and said, we can't really use this with customers because it's not great to look at. It's not very easy. So we went and iterated and built a new front end that we could actually use that had the kind of RoboAdvice engine behind it. And that's the kind of bit that I was sent off with a company in London and basically just with them, we designed that in a couple of weeks' time so we could use it, put it on a CD, and we burnt it onto 100 CDs and distributed it out to each of the relationship managers so that they could basically run it off of the CD at that time. Ha! Who remembers CDs? Once upon a time, they were more than just coasters for your drink. Anyway, that concludes part one of Dave and Darm Demystify taking a look back at Inkscape. Be sure to tune in for part two and hear the rest of the story here on Dave and Darm Demystify. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Darm Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Darm Demystify Show is a production of Contrarian New Media, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.